appreciate the choir and the song that they sung. My wife was reminding me, and I thought that I knew that. Um, Brother Joseph uh, wrote that song, and it's a, it was, it's a blessing. Uh, a song about the warfare of the Christian life and uh, fighting the good fight, and, and we're going to be talking a little bit about that in a way tonight. Galatians chapter 5, if you have your Bibles. Galatians chapter 5. We want to read it verse 13. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. But by love, serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that you would. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, help us as we study your word tonight to see the message that you have here for each one of us. A message that we need in these days, that we might be a blessing to you, that we might be a testimony to the people around us that we might serve one another in love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're continuing here in Galatians chapter 5, and we want to begin this evening where we ended last week, and that's here in verse 13, where Paul says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, uh, the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, that we read about in verse 1. And if the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. But Christian liberty is not a liberty that is unrestrained by law. Someone has said, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, but not from the obligation of the law. The liberty that we have in Christ doesn't give us license to to kill or steal or bear false witness or commit adultery or covet. Paul, uh, Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 6. We looked at the verses there last week. He begins chapter 6 with these words, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he begins this way because he just said in the final words of chapter 5, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And so the Spirit of God, who knows the deceit of our hearts, and who knows how we are ever looking for a way to use the, the subtle and the crafty and the deceptive nature of our heart to justify the wickedness of our heart, the Spirit of God who knows how we think has Paul begin chapter 6 with this question. 
What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He asked that question because of what he just said in chapter 5. If where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, then why not have more sin to have more grace? And he addresses that. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer comes in verse 2. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And then in verse 15, the Spirit of God has Paul write these words. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law? but under grace. And again, the unequivocal answer is God forbid. God is addressing the philosophy of antinomianism. And I read you the definition of that word from David Cloud's Way of Life uh, Encyclopedia of the Bible and Christianity. He gives a very good definition of that great big word, antinomianism. It's the teaching that the gospel does away with the old moral law. So that the Christian is no longer bound by it. Those who hold this philosophy claim to be, uh, claim that they're Christians, but they refuse to follow any kind of moral code. They claim that Christian liberty liberates them to live entirely as they please. And that's what Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 6 and what he's warning the Galatians and us about. He's warning us to avoid this false doctrine. The liberty that we have in Christ gives us the freedom and the power of God to Reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin. That we should not henceforth serve sin. It gives us the liberty to not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. This is true Christian liberty. And then last week we came to the last part of verse 13. And I told you that for all the years that I have read this verse, I missed the message. Paul says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. And Paul doesn't go into a long list of examples of how we use our liberty for an occasion to the flesh. He just says this. But by love, serve one another. And the message that finally dawned on me is that the greatest example in my life of using the liberty that I have in Christ for an occasion to the flesh is not serving one another by love. Last week and again tonight, we mentioned a minute ago that Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, but not from the obligation of the law. And what is the obligation of the law? Well, it's there in verse 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
That's one of the most amazing and convicting statements in the Bible. And it stands, as Mr. Creech said to me this week, as a never-ending proof of our complete inability to do it. Our only hope is to daily be delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus, who is love, might be manifest in our mortal flesh. And using our liberty as an occasion to the flesh to not serve one another by love, using our liberty as an occasion to the flesh to not love our neighbor as ourself leads to what we read in verse 15. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. I think it's instructive to notice the words in this verse. Bite, devour, consumed. If you think about it, all that has to do with our mouth, doesn't it? And what is it that is in our mouths that bites and devours and consumes? It's our tongue. Our tongue is an organ of speech, and it is our speech, it is our words that can bite and devour and consume the very people that we are by love to serve. It's our words that bite and devour and consume our neighbors, those around us that we're to love as we love ourselves. The tongue is the instrument that we take the most liberties with and used most often as an occasion to the flesh. Paul describes our condition by nature in Romans chapter 3. And he says in verse 13, of each one of us, their throat, our throat, is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. And what is it that's under our lips? It's our tongue. Our tongue can be a weapon. In Psalm 64, David describes how our tongue can be used. He says, who wet, wet, W-H-E-T. If you look that word up, it means to sharpen. He's talking about people. He's talking about us who have this propensity to wet, to sharpen our tongue like a sword and then bend our bows to shoot our arrows. And what are our arrows? Even bitter words. Bitter words. That's why we read in Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. 
Turn over, if you will, to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Let's read beginning at verse 2. James chapter 3 and verse 2. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and also and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. A horse is a large animal, and yet a horse is controlled by a little bit that is part of a bridle. The bit fits in the horse's mouth. And that little bit is used to turn the whole body of this great big animal. I'm always amazed at how big horses are when you get up close to them. And yet, they're controlled by just this little bit that goes in their mouth. Verse 4. Behold also the ships which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listed. Like a, a bit in a horse's mouth. These great ships are turned about with a very small helm, a very small rudder. And James could not have imagined the great ships that he's talking about here and the great ships that we have today. I was reading about one of those newest and greatest cruise ships. It's called the Icon of the Seas. It's 1,200 feet long. It holds 7,600 passengers, and it holds a crew of nearly 2,400. In other words, every time that ship sets sail, if it has a full complement of passengers, there are 10,000 people on it. And yet, it is turned about with a rudder that is just a little over 27 feet. Now think about that. This rudder is only 2% as long as this ship. It's small in comparison. And yet it turns that ship whithersoever the governor listed. And then... So James takes these two examples and he applies these comparisons of bits to large horses and small rudders to great ships to us in verse 5. 
Even so, the tongue, even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. Our tongue is to us as a bit is to a horse. Our tongue is to us as a small helm, as a small rudder is to a great ship. Even so, the tongue is a little member, just like a little helm steers a great ship and a little bit steers a horse. Our tongue is a little member. And look at what we read about this little member. Boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. And the deadly poison that our tongue is full of, Paul just told us about. It's the poison of an asp. An asp is, is a small, and yet it is one of the most venomous serpents that's on the earth. That's our tongue. This little member, little member. We see that wording in verse 5, and it brings to mind something that we've been talking about in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 9. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Just a little leaven from this little member can leaven the whole lump of our testimony. It can leaven the whole lump of our ministry for the Lord. Think about that. A few words can literally destroy our testimony. There's a secular example that came to mind. It's a man by the name of Alexander Haig. Alexander Haig was the White House Chief of Staff under President Nixon and President Ford. He was the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. I guess that had to do with NATO. He was in that position until 1979. And he was Secretary of State under President Ronald Reagan. Some of you remember, you may not remember the date. I honestly didn't. I just remembered the year. But on March the 30th, 1981, Ronald Reagan was making a speech at a hotel in Washington, very close to the White House. And as he was leaving the hotel, there was a crowd there. And uh, 
the people were shouting. They were friendly, but there was one person there, James Hinckley, who was there, and his purpose was to assassinate the president. And he fired a number of shots. There was a policeman who was injured. There were two Secret Service agents who were injured. There, were, there was President Reagan's press secretary, James Brady, who was the most seriously injured, well, beside the president. He was shot in the head. And at first, they didn't think President Reagan had been hit. The Secret Service agent pushed him into the car, and they took off. Well, he, the president coughed, and, of course, he brought up bright red blood, and they changed their destination from going back to the White House to going to the hospital. And, of course, there was some level of confusion uh, Vice President Bush was in Texas. Um, he had been there um, to make a speech in um, Fort Worth. Actually, he was there to dedicate a plaque at the place where um, President Kennedy had spent his last night before he was assassinated. And so he's on his way. He's on Air Force Two flying from Fort Worth to Austin, he was going to give a, a speech there in the, in the capital to the Texas legislature. Well, he's in the air, 30,000 feet, and he gets the word. Uh, communications were a little less uh, ideal uh, then uh, as opposed to the way they are now. But he was talking uh, to folks there in Washington. He was talking to Secretary of State Haig as best they could. But Secretary of State Haig stepped to the microphone and he gave a summary of the situation. He'd been in contact with the vice president and the vice president was on his way back to Washington. But then Mr. Haig was asked this question. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? Some of you remember what he said. He spoke four words. I'm in control here. Those four words leavened the whole lump of his future political career because it was perceived to reveal an ambition in him that is a character flaw in a leader. And that day, Alexander Haig was in stark contrast to Vice President Bush. As he was flying back to Washington, uh, the Secret Service said, when we land, we want you to get on the helicopter and fly to the White House, land on the lawn of the White House, so you can get to the Situation Room. He said, no, no, we're not going to do that. He said, landing on the lawn of the White House is a privilege for the president, and I'm not the president. He had them fly the helicopter to Blair House, which is the place where the vice president lives, and land the helicopter there and then take a motorcade to the White House. He was very cognizant of his position, and he, was, he did not want to offend Mrs. Reagan in any way, to, to give her the impression or to give the nation the impression that he was somehow taking over in the, 
even though he was, based on the 25th Amendment, the, the acting president in that situation. Very interesting to, to think about that. Four words. Four words. But there's a spiritual example that comes to mind, which is far more important and relevant to what we're talking about. And that spiritual example is from the life of Moses. Think about all of the words of grace and all of the words of wisdom, all of the words of leadership, if you will, that Moses spoke. And yet in Numbers chapter 20, and I'd like for you to turn back there, if you will, keep your place here in James and, and look back at Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. In, um, in this chapter, we find a very familiar um, event in the life of the people of Israel. They're there in the wilderness, and we see in verse 2 that there was no water for the congregation. And so they gathered themselves against Moses and against Aaron. And verse 3 says, The people chode with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. And why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our cattle should die there? And wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us unto this evil place? It is no place of seed or figs or vines or of pomegranates. Neither is there any water to drink. So here's this group of people who were champions at murmuring and complaining, and they could do it in a drop of a hat, just like I can and you can. And Moses and Aaron, verse 6, went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water. But that's not all that the Lord told Moses. Notice what he told him at the end of verse 8. And thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock so shalt thou give the congregation and their beasts drink. Now, what was the Lord telling Moses? He was telling him what we've been reading about in Galatians chapter 5. He was telling him to, by love, serve one another. But what did Moses do? This man who had been called unto liberty. This man who had been called to lead himself and the people of God from the bondage and the servitude of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb 
Moses used his liberty for an occasion to the flesh. And what was the manifestation of him using his liberty for an occasion to the flesh? What was the manifestation of him failing by love to serve one another? The manifestation of him not loving his neighbor as himself. It was his tongue. It was his tongue. Moses spoke 13 words. Count them. 13 words. Isn't it interesting how many times that number pops up when you're reading the Word of God? By the way, it's in Galatians 5.13. The 13th verse where, uh, where Paul tells us not to use our liberty as an occasion for the flesh. But Moses speaks 13 words unadvisedly with his lips. That's what the psalmist tells us in in Psalm 106 and verse 33. And hear the words. Hear now, ye rebels. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? The Lord says, Moses, that's what I want you to do. Moses said, I don't want to do that. 13 words that he used to bite and devour and consume the people of Israel. And those 13 words, that little bit of leaven from his tongue, from this little member, leavened the whole lump of his ministry to lead the people of God into the promised land. The Lord told him, the Lord tells him in verse 12, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Now let's go back to to James chapter 3. Verse 5. Even so the tongue is a little member And boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter. A little fire. And the tongue is a fire. Behold how great a matter. A little fire kindleth. A little member. A little fire. Four words. Kindled a great political matter. In Washington in 1981. That leavened the promising political career. Of Alexander Haig. A little fire. Thirteen words kindled a great spiritual crisis. In one of God's choicest servants. He knew Moses face to face. It ended his ministry. Taking Israel into the promised land. And the very same thing can happen to us. It can happen to us. It can happen to me. It can happen to you because our tongue is the instrument that we take the most liberties with and use most often for an occasion for the flesh. For an occasion to the flesh and fail in using it 
to serve one another by love. Our tongue is the instrument that we take the most liberties with and use most often for an occasion to the flesh to bite and devour and consume one another. And what we see in verse 8, we ought to pay particular attention to. The tongue can no man tame. Can't be tamed. I can't tame mine. You can't tame yours. It is an unruly evil. That word unruly means restrained. That means that our tongue cannot be restrained. We have no power to restrain it. So what are we going to do? Well, that's why we need to go back to Galatians chapter 5. What are we going to do? Paul tells us. Galatians chapter 5. In verse 16, he says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit. How are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? It's the only way that our tongue can be tamed. But how are we going to do that? How are we going to walk in the Spirit? The Lord Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23, And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Romans 6, 11, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Dead people. Do not speak unadvisedly with their lips. That's the importance of reckoning ourselves to be dead. People who are dead don't offend other believers with their tongue. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Romans, or rather Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Yet not I, but Christ And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, Purge out therefore the old leaven. Purge out therefore the old leaven that this little member loves to spew. That ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. That's how we walk in the Spirit. That's how we can not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's how the tongue, our tongue, can be tamed. And so everything's going to be good, right? 
Well, when we do that, we need to understand that what is going to happen is we're going to be brought in the forefront of the hottest battle. Look at verse 17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. This is the battle of the Christian life. The choir sang, Brother Joseph wrote the song, Fight the Good Fight. This is the fight that takes place in our minds and in our lives every moment of every day. The flesh lusting against the spirit, the spirit lusting against the flesh. We're talking about a fight, a war that's taking place. It's the battle of the Christian life. The question tonight is, are we in that battle? Are we in that battle? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to look into your word, to be reminded again from these verses that the greatest manifestation of using our liberty for an occasion to the flesh and not by love serving one another is our tongue. Our tongue that bites and devours and consumes. Our tongue that no man can contain. Father, we thank you that when we know you as our Savior, we have in us the power of God and the Lord can deal with that tongue. He can deal with our tongue if we're willing to die to self, to reckon ourselves dead, that the life of the Lord Jesus might be manifest in us. We pray that that would be the desire of our hearts tonight. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.